And uh, I just, I long for our church to be what our series is titled this, this uh, month and, and this year, and that is devoted, to be those kinds of people, thank you so much, those kinds of people uh, that the early church was made up of. The early church, the apostolic church, passionate about Jesus, passionate about his resurrection, and passionate about people. And uh, we're here in Acts chapter 14. It's a great story, really kind of two stories. And um, one of them, Luke continues in, in his classic sort of Lucan humor. There's, there's a, a whole new element of comedy here in, Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 14. We're going to see that. Um, but let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll just dive right in. God in heaven, we just ask that you'll be with us now as we open Scripture, open our hearts to you, and soften us, subdue us, and make us people after your own heart. Make us people who love Jesus and who long to be like him in the world. We ask this in his name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 14. And you'll notice that the very last verse of Acts chapter 13 says, And the disciples were filled with what? What does it say there? They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The last time that we were together, we were in Antioch. And Paul had made his way to Antioch in Pisidia. And as he had made his way there, um, he had gone into the synagogue here. There's two Antiochs, recall. Antioch in Syria and Antioch in Pisidia. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, for those of you that are historically inclined or historically interested, this is taking place in and around A.D. 48, maybe as early as A.D. 46, okay? So this is about 13 to 15 years after the ascension of Jesus, or in and around that time. And Paul and uh, some of his companions have sailed from Antioch, where they planted the first Gentile congregation, non-Jewish congregation. We saw that back in Acts chapter 11. They sailed to the island that Barnabas himself was from, the island of, of Cyprus, and they stayed there for a little while. That's where they met Sergius Paulus, the intelligent man that, that received the gospel, believed the gospel. There was a, a sorcerer that was rebuked by uh, Paul there on that island. And then they sailed north up here to Adaliah and then walked eventually, made their way north to Antioch. When they went to Antioch, they did that which was customary in the cities, towns, or villages where there was a synagogue. They went in to the synagogue. And the only sermon that is recorded by Luke in which Paul preaches in a synagogue was what we looked at last week. Acts chapter 13. Now we know that Paul goes to many other synagogues and Luke seems to record only this one instance of Paul's preaching there to sort of let you know that that's what he would talk about. That was his template. He would go to the various prophecies and he would point to the resurrected Messiah. You will recall, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. That's really the passion there. And there was significant opposition in Antioch from the Jews. And that opposition is going to creep up here again as they travel now to these three places. This is where we're going to be here. We're going to be in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then what will happen is Paul will retrace his steps back and eventually make his way back to Antioch in time for Acts chapter 15, which Daniel will be preaching on next week, which takes a place in and around A.D. 50, which is the great Jerusalem council where the church is going to come together to think through how do we theologically and methodologically relate to this whole new, wild, revolutionary, crazy idea of preaching a Jewish, Jewish message from Jewish scriptures about a Jewish Messiah to non-Jewish people, right? They've got to go back to Jerusalem to sort of debate it out, to argue it out, and I'm really looking forward when I return to hearing Daniel's sermon on that. So you'll have that next week. 
But here we find ourselves moving further and further into what was called, what's that word right there? Can you see that? Galatia, right? Galatia. When you, when you think about Galatians or Galatia or Pisidia, that's this area here. It's basically modern Turkey, right? So Paul is traveling in and around the area that we today would call Turkey. And I know we sometimes think of Turkey as, as an Islamic center and as, an, as a place where, where uh, Islam presently rules. And certainly today it is largely Islamic, though it's one of the uh, more secular Islamic states. But back in these days, this is hundreds of years before the advent of Islam, hundreds of years before that transition, and Turkey or, or Galatia was the very center in many ways of the work and the missionary work that God was doing in the Gentile community. And these uh, early missionary journeys of Paul and his first, second, and third missionary journeys give us a picture of the history of the early church that we could have never had. We, we would not understand the New Testament if the book of Acts didn't exist. If there was no book of Acts trying to put together the puzzle of Paul's epistles to whom and from whom and when he was here and when he was here and all the events that would have taken place, the New Testament, frankly, would be a complete mess without the book of Acts. In fact, I call the book of Acts the fifth gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are what you might call the pre-resurrection gospels. The vast majority of Matthew and of Mark and of Luke and of John take place before the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Acts is the post-resurrection gospel. This is the story of what Jesus is doing by his spirit through his church. So instead of thinking of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think of the five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the pre-resurrection gospels, and then the book of Acts, the post-resurrection gospel, where it's still Jesus who's working, but it's by his spirit through the church. Here, is, as we encounter Paul, we've transitioned from the Peterine first third of Acts to the Pauline second two-thirds, the, the latter part of Acts. We encounter Paul on his first missionary journey, and he's making his way right up into the heart of Galatia. This is Gentile territory. In fact, when Paul was in Antioch, as we've already mentioned, he went into the synagogue. There were Jews there. There were enough Jews to support a congregation and a synagogue, at least one. There may have been more. But now as Paul is going to travel to Lystra, we're going to find there's not even a synagogue here because this is the seat of the worship of Zeus, there's a temple to Zeus. This is new territory, new context, new situation. Now, we're not actually going to begin in verse 1. We're going to sort of do the, the chapter a little backwards. We're going to start with the second story, and then we're going to go back to the first story, and you'll see why in just a little bit. We're going to start by going to verse 8, and you will recall that the last time we were together, we made two major points, and one of those points was context, context, context. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul made his way into a Jewish synagogue, he tells a largely Jewish story. He talks about Israel, 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 Israel. He quotes from the Old Testament scriptures. He talks about Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. He's in a Jewish context, in a Jewish place, in a Jewish synagogue, and he tells a Jewish story, right? Context, context, context. But Paul now makes his way to Lystra. And in verse 8, Paul doesn't go wandering, as his custom was, into the local Jewish synagogue because there wasn't one. This was a town that was regionally, geographically, culturally, and socially dedicated largely to the worship of Zeus. This is new territory. This is pagan territory. This is truly Gentile territory. 
And Luke is going to record for us a serendipitous series of events that take place in what can only be described as humorous fashion. As we read what takes place here, Luke tells the story, and clearly Luke puts humor to work for him, not just here but in other places. But let's just sort of read this through and try and understand this idea of context. How do we accommodate context without sacrificing content? This is the question that faced not only Paul 2,000 years ago, it is the preeminent question that faces the Seventh-day Adventist Church today and that faces the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church right here today in October of 2014. Context, yes, but not at the expense of the Gospels. What word is that right there? Content. And we're going to see a great story here where the opportunity was presented to Paul and Barnabas to be so contextual that they actually sacrifice the basic content of the gospel. We'll see how they respond when presented with that opportunity. Verse 8. We'll come back to verse 1. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, if this sounds a little bit familiar, it sounds a lot like Acts chapter 3, and we noted that the last time we were together. Luke is telling a story in which everything that Peter did in the first 10 chapters, Paul is now doing. He's basically authenticating or, or sort of putting a stamp of approval, an apostolic stamp on Paul's ministry by saying, hey, Peter preached, Paul preached. Peter healed, Paul healed. Peter rebuked a a sorcerer and magician. Paul rebuked a sorcerer and magician. What Peter did, Paul did. He's putting the stamp of apostolic authority. Luke is being very intentional about this. Paul wanders into Lystra. He sees there a man who has been crippled from his mother's womb. Scripture says that he looks intently at him, and with a loud voice he says, stand up straight on your feet, and he leapt and walked. This is oh so similar to the story back in Acts chapter 3 where the man sitting at the The temple in Jerusalem looked up at Peter and Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And it says, he went walking and leaping and praising God. Right? Very similar stories. Now check this out. Apparently Paul said this sufficiently loud and somebody oversaw or overheard the event that takes place and it was of sufficient stir or visibility. It says... Verse 11, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, the gods have now come down to us in the likeness of men. Now this idea of gods coming in the likeness of men is very much in keeping with basic Greek thinking, right? Greek mythology is a whole bunch of gods that are shaped like men and women. They look like us, they act like us, they're, they're upset like us, they're, they're envious like us. And so the idea that a Zeus or a Hermes or a Mercury or a Jupiter could come down as men, this was very much in keeping with their cultural context. They have just seen what is clearly and decidedly a miracle. This guy stands up on his feet and the people respond with, with tremendous enthusiasm. Right? Not unlike the enthusiasm that the bystanders saw back in Acts chapter 3. They said, whoa, this guy has been laying here at the temple day after day for years, and now he walks. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. It's kind of funny. I like this. Paul is clearly the, the speaker. Paul is the preacher. Paul is the one that's leading out. But in their thinking, 
Hermes, who was the deliverer of divine messages, and not only the deliverer of divine messages, but the interpreter of divine messages. For those of you that are interested in language um, and the origins of language, you will be familiar with the word maybe hermeneutics. How many of you have heard of that word before? Biblical hermeneutics. It means the interpretation of Scripture. Well, guess where that word comes from? Hermeneutics. It comes from the god Hermes. Hermes was the deliverer and the interpreter of divine messages. And when we go to the text, we try to understand what God is saying. This is a hermeneutical enterprise. And so when Paul came in preaching, they said, oh, he must be the messenger, but the one who's quiet, who carries himself perhaps with a solemn and somber and dignified manner, he's the real boss, right? That's Zeus and that's Hermes. Verse 13, then the priest of Zeus. Now here's where part of this sort of serendipitous thing starts happening. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Now, this is clearly not something that's been prepared for Paul and Barnabas' arrival. This is just something that also happened to be taking place that day. And as this healing has taken place, and the people are beginning to call out with great enthusiasm, the gods are among us. Here goes this you know, sacrifice, bull, all prepared, got at the garlands, it's been readied for sacrifice. Lo and behold, right on time, coincidentally, serendipitously, and they say, hey, the gods are here. They're already here. Let's just sacrifice to them. And, uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas are there to preach the gospel. And they're thinking, oh, this is good news. A crowd is gathering, right? They're just going to be ready to preach the risen Christ. Now, remember, they're not in a Jewish synagogue here. So the way they're going to tell this story is going to be very different from at least contextually what we saw back in Acts 13. Jewish synagogue, Jewish story, lots of stuff about Israel, 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 Abraham. The people here might not even know who Abraham is or even what Israel is perhaps, except for a nation that uh, was somewhat to the south and the east of them. They're not going to tell that story. They're going to tell a different story. But before they ever even get started telling the story, verse 14 says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, that they were going to offer sacrifices to them, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. Tearing your clothes was very significantly and symbolically Jewish. It was a way of communicating that a blasphemous thing is taking place. You will recall, for example, when Jesus stood before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and they asked and they put some very pointed questions to Jesus. And when Jesus answered those questions in a certain way, in a show of blasphemous symbolism, the high priest tore his garments, right? Of course, that was a show. That was a hypocritical show. But this is not. Paul and Barnabas are deeply disturbed, and all of a sudden, mob mentality is beginning to take over, and they realize, hey, we need to put a stop to this before it really gets out of hands. And so in a show that probably would not have been understood by those non-Jewish peoples, they run into the midst, tear their clothes, and say, look at this, very interesting, verse 15, what are you doing? Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Let me just pause here. I, if time allowed, and it doesn't really today, because I've got a main point I want to get to. If time allowed, we could really tease out just how contextual Paul's message is here. Notice that he begins in creation. 
right? Every culture, every religion, every system of philosophy and, and spirituality and religion has some story, some myth, some narrative about creation. And so notice that Paul, when he's speaking to Gentiles who aren't Jews, they're not in a Jewish context or a Jewish synagogue, he starts by telling a story that is universally consistent. He starts by telling the creation story, right? He says, no, 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 it's not like this. God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. This is universal language. It rains everywhere. It rains in Galatia, just like it rains in Jerusalem. People eat food in Galatia just like they eat food in Jerusalem. What Paul is trying to do here, and when we get to Acts chapter 17, which I'm really gutted that I don't get to preach, I think that's actually Jared. It's my favorite chapter in the whole book of Acts. We see this contextualization taken to its most profound in the book of Acts, where Paul spends time with the Athenian philosophers. But here again, it's, it's so clear. He's speaking to Gentiles, and he starts talking about commonalities. What about creation? And there's a God who made everything. And he sends the rain and he sends the sun and he puts food in our bellies. He's hoping to find some kind of connection so that they won't think for a minute that they are some sort of gods. They're not Jupiter and Hermes and Zeus and Mercury. No such thing. But they were so filled with enthusiasm, so happy about this miracle that has taken place. And Paul's powerful eloquence must have further persuaded them, this guy really is Mercury. He really is Hermes. But look at what happens. <laughs> Quite interesting. It says there in verse 18, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Whoa, they must have been really impressed with Paul, with his eloquence, with his power, with his verbiage. They thought, surely this guy is a God. Not only can he heal, not only can he tell people to stand up and walk who formerly were crippled, listen to the eloquence and the poetry with which he speaks. Sacrifice to the gods. And this large sort of, this like gathering is taking place. Now this would be an opportunity. And there are some in our ranks who would say, hey, when in Rome, do as the Rome. Do as the Romans. Hey, if they want to sacrifice to us as gods, we'll just get in their context. But right here is the crucial point. Paul is making every energy, every effort to try and preach the truth in their context. But there is a point at which content becomes compromised by context if we go too far. Sacrificing to Paul, sacrificing to Barnabas, giving glory to a man rather than glory to God and to the risen Messiah is a bridge too far for Paul and it's a bridge too far for Barnabas. And they're like, no, under no circumstances. Well, at just this moment, just as there had been a serendipitous healing, and just as there had been a serendipitous person or persons that had seen it, and just as there had been a serendipitous sacrifice that had been wandering through, now there's just at this very moment, look at what happens in verse 19. Then, in the midst of Paul and Barnabas trying to dissuade the, this increasingly energetic and enthusiastic pagan mob from having a festival in their name, and the pagans were often up for a good festival because it involved food, it involved party, it involved dancing, it involved drunkenness, it involved orgies. And so they were, they were super happy to have a party. And you can just imagine Paul and Barnabas going, oh no, this is not going well. Well, at just this moment, some Jews who came from Antioch, back here, these guys that were really upset with Paul and they kicked him out of the city, 
they now have wandered trying to find where Paul has ended up. And here he is in Lystra. And at just this moment, these Jews, it says in verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I I can just imagine what that scene would have been like. They see this, you know, they come into town, there's a mob there, maybe of several hundred, perhaps as many as several thousand, and as the Jews sort of, those that have wandered in from Antioch, they discern what's taking place. They see Barnabas and Saul in the middle of it, perhaps wrapped with garlands and clothes torn, and they're thinking, oh, these guys are the ones that they're celebrating, and they begin to spread the word. Hey, these guys aren't your gods. They're imposters. In fact, they've already been to our city, and they're preaching an imposter counterfeit message of our God. The God of our scriptures. What? And in a moment, in a flash, and this just shows the fickleness of man, they go from being divinized to demonized in a moment. Right? In one moment, they're at the top, and the next moment, they're just a flash in the pan. And they say, well, if we can't offer, offer, if we can't offer sacrifices to them, we'll turn them into a sacrifice. And they pick up stones, and whoo, they start hurling them at Paul. Paul was, was so bludgeoned by stones that he's ushered out of the city, and verse 19 ends by saying, they thought the dude was dead. I love verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, look at this, this guy is an absolute glutton for punishment, and went into the city. And the next day they departed with Barnabas to Derby. Okay, we'll come back to that in just a second. Notice this here. Context, yes, but not at the expense of content. I love this. One of the things that this passage that we've just read here about the mistaken identity of Paul and Barnabas as gods, as Zeus and Hermes and Mercury and Jupiter, one of the things that this passage highlights and one of the things that Moesha's testimony highlights, where's Moesha at? I'm looking for Moesha here. Where are you at? One of the things that Moesha's testimony highlights, she's sitting there trying to talk to classical, secular Australians, many of whom not raised in a Christian context, virtually all of them, I assume, not raised in a Seventh-day Adventist context, and she's trying to explain to them the Sabbath, right? And the Sabbath is just like, shoo, 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 shoo. It's just like bouncing off of their secular associations and identity. And finally, she's just grasping, like Paul is often in the New Testament, for something that they can lay hold on. And she says, it's my chill-out day. Oh, cool, man, cool. They They kind of get it, but here's the point. This story and Moesha's testimony highlights the fundamental difficulty of telling the story of Jesus to a culture that doesn't know what in the world you're talking about. Are you with me, yes or no? Look at this. One of the highlights of this passage is the almost bottomless pit of potential, what is that word right there? Misunderstandings that await anyone who tries to speak and live out. That's what Moesha was doing. That's what Sinead and Angus are doing, trying to live out this essentially Jewish message of the gospel with the remarkable news of the one true creator God. There are so many barriers in the way So much anger against the way the world is, often with people simultaneously blaming God for all the bad and declaring that they don't believe in him. Isn't that a coincidence? I don't believe in God and he's responsible for all the bad. It's like one well-known Catholic theologian who also happens to be an atheist, apparently doesn't see the the disconnect there, and uh, he's famous for having said on one occasion, there is no God and Mary is his mother. Right? Now, we think, well, that's a bundle of contradictions. That doesn't make a wink of sense. Well, I tell you, much of secular Australia doesn't make any sense in their thinking about God either. They're really 
really angry. They're either very angry at God for allowing things to have happened, all these bad things, somebody got cancer, some natural disaster took place, or they're saying there is no God, right? That's the world that we live in. So much distortion of what the message is through bad teaching or a bad experience of church or at a synagogue. But the point of this whole narrative that we've just read in its larger framework is precisely to show the explosive, if this is a key word here, deeply confusing effects of taking the message of Jesus out into the wider world. The journey of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, I love this, from the ends of the earth, is unstoppable but uncomfortable that comes with the territory. Oh, I love that. The message is unstoppable, but the situations are uncomfortable. It's not an easy thing to do, to sit there and try to explain to people who have no clue. That's what Paul was trying to do in Lystra. That's what Barnabas was trying to do in Lystra. And the people, they couldn't get it. And Paul is going to do his best. He's going to bring context. He's going to bring local culture. He's going to bring local narratives. He might even wear local clothes or eat local food, provided it was, it was uh, not uh, in, uh, against the basic teachings of Scripture. He's going to do every single thing he can to contextualize the message, but there is a line beyond which the content of the message is compromised. And we have to realize that at some fundamental level, the message of Scripture is foolishness to the world. We need to do our best to make it palatable, to make it understandable, to make it persuasive, to make it attractive. But there will always be a chasm between what Scripture teaches and what the world believes. Can somebody say amen? Is it easy to contextualize? No. Are people always going to accept? No. In fact, one of the things we're exposed to in Acts chapter 14, go back to verse 1 now. One of the things that we're exposed to in Acts chapter 14 is that Paul, and Luke makes no qualms about this, Even the great, mighty, rhetorically gifted Paul receives mixed results. You know, the greatest evangelist and missionary in the history of the church, and he's getting mixed results. Some people ready to stone him, and other people believe his message. We should not be dissuaded when we give a powerful, persuasive, compelling, consistent Christian witness, and somebody doesn't believe. At the end of the day, that is not your responsibility. Success is in ministry and in witnessing is God's business, not your business. Look at verse 1. Now we're kind of jumping back in time here because this is the primary point that I want to make today. We have to be willing to be misunderstood and sometimes even maligned. And for those of you that like a single sermon, a simple sermon, one word, right? This is for you, Alex. This is for you, buddy. What's the word? What's the sermon about today? Grace. Right? It's about grace. If you forget the context stuff, the sermon is about grace. If you've been paying attention, Luke has done something very clever and very intentional. He has started inserting two words in his account in Acts that virtually don't occur in the first ten chapters. Each word occurs one time in the first 10 chapters. But as soon as we turn the page and we get to Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then especially when we get into Paul's ministry, all of a sudden these two words just start showing up all over the place. And the two words are what? What are the two words up there on the screen? Number one, grace. And number two, the gospel. These words just, they just make an appearance almost seemingly out of nowhere. Let's just look at them quickly. Look at Acts chapter 11. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 23. There's no better place for the word grace to show up here because this is the planting of the first Gentile congregation. 
This is when Barnabas showed up, and it says in verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And Luke has now grabbed onto that word, and he's going to use it over and over and over again. Grace, 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 grace. And in concert with that word, he's grabbed onto another word, and that's the word gospel. And he's going to go gospel, 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 over and over again. Look at 1343. Luke chapter 13, verse 43. Paul's preaching and it says, speaking to them, he persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Chapter 14, verse 3, therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly. This is the chapter we're in right now. Speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. Jump down to verse 7. It says, and there he preached the gospel. Look at verse 21 of Acts 14. And when they had preached the gospel... Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 26, and it says he, com- he commended them to the grace of God. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 7, the last bit there says, hearing the word of the gospel and believing. Look at verse 11, but we believe through grace. I mean, he just can't stop saying these words. If you have a, a computer and you're able to do a little search or you have a simple Strong's Concordance, just look up the word grace in the first 10 chapters of Acts and you'll find it's used exactly one time. And then look up the word gospel in the first 10 chapters of Acts, and you'll find it's used exactly one time. And then see how it's used from chapter 11 down to 28. It's grace, 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 gospel, 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 grace, grace, grace. He keeps, why? Because this is the very point, methodologically and theologically, that the early church was wrestling with. And the question boils down basically to this. Simply put, the question was, how Jewish does a Gentile have to become? These are Jewish scriptures. This is a Jewish story. He's a Jewish Messiah. You're not a Jew. How Jewish do you have to become in order to receive the Jewish Messiah? And Paul's answer in a word is grace. God will receive people to himself of non-Jewish descent, of non-Jewish associations because of this thing called grace. Now, for those of you that are somewhat theologically inclined, let me give you a little background here. The backdrop of Galatians, the book of Galatians, which was the first epistle that Paul wrote, that's basically unanimously agreed upon by scholars, that Paul's first book that he ever wrote, his first letter was the letter to the Galatians. Well, we just saw on the map there, Galatia is Turkey. Guess what churches Paul is writing to? He's writing to Antioch. He's writing to Iconium. He's writing to Lystra. He's writing to Derby. He's writing to the very churches that we are reading about here in Acts chapters 13 and 14. This is taking place in and around A.D. 49 to 52. It's very difficult to place the exact date, but somewhere in here. Acts 13 is taking place just before this. When Daniel preaches next week on Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15 takes place in about A.D. 50 or A.D. 51, the great Jerusalem council, where all of this confusion is going to be finally and fully debated by the church. And the question they're going to debate is, how Jewish... Does a Gentile believer have to become in order to be a believer in the Jewish Messiah from the Jewish scriptures? That's the question. Now, we've not really done this much, but we're going to go to a text of scripture that's outside of the book of Acts. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 2. So go with me to Galatians, actually 1 and 2. Go to Galatians, and here we encounter a story. Now remember, this is Paul writing to the very churches that we are here discussing. He's writing to Antioch. He's writing to the church in Iconium. 
He's writing to the church in Derby. He's writing to the church in Lystra. He's writing to the Pisidian churches. Okay? And he is stirred up. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1. I am surprised that you are turning away so soon. Now, in other words, he was just there about a year or two before. Word has trickled back to him what's happened in his absence. I am amazed that you have turned so soon from him who called you in the, what's the first word he says? In the grace of Christ to a different, what's the word? Gospel. Grace gospel. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. For am I trying to persuade men or am I persuading God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. Verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I preach was not according to man. Jump down to verse 15. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, he called me through his grace. Man, Paul is stirred up. He's like a good pastor. Stirred up. He left the church in seemingly capable hands, and yet he gets word back a few months or perhaps as long as a year later, and he gets word that even though they had believed grace and even though that many of them were Gentile Christians, others have come in and have persuaded them that yes, it's Jesus, but it's also Jewishness. Yes, Jesus, plus your efforts to become Jewish. Jesus plus Jewishness. Jesus plus Jewishness. You say, man, what does this have to do with us today? I tell you. We are in a similar danger, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but we can be in a similar danger of saying, yes, you can become a believer in Jesus, but you also have to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, do I want people to become Seventh-day Adventists? I think so. I think I do. I love the message of Seventh-day Adventism. I love the doctrines that God has committed to us, but we must be very careful to make a distinction between somebody coming to faith in Jesus, which can happen in a Baptist church, which can happen in a Presbyterian church, which can happen... Even in a Catholic church, people can come to faith in the risen Messiah in all different kinds of churches, and we should rejoice when people do. We shouldn't say, well, you know, they've come to faith, but it's, uh, they're not members of our church. No, 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 no. We do not want to make, do we want people to come to the truth of the Sabbath, to come to the truth of the state of the dead? Do we want people to eat right and live right and to follow the whole of the scriptural narrative? Yes, yes, yes. But that doesn't prevent us from celebrating and rejoicing when other churches are prospering. If people are coming to faith in the Baptist church, if people are going to a Billy Graham crusade or a, what, somebody else's crusade, a Rick Warren church, and they're coming to faith in Jesus, and they're laying behind their sin, and they're trusting in his righteousness, and they're believing in his resurrection, the response of the church, our church, should be, Amen! Hallelujah! And this, this is kind of what was happening in Galatia. It's not an identical analogy, but it's close. Because people said, yes, Jesus, these new teachers that had come in, these false teachers, these false messengers, they said, yes, Jesus, but also Jewishness. It's Jesus plus. And Paul had just been preaching Jesus full stop. He'd been preaching Jesus full stop. And now they've said it's Jesus and. Jesus and And especially in the case of the Galatian problem, it's Jesus and circumcision. Well, circumcision is going to be a tough sell, right? Circumcision is going to be a tough sell for grown men who have no cultural or social attachment to the story of Abraham. 
right? That's going to be not only a theological hurdle, that's going to be a methodological hurdle. Can you just imagine the Apostle Paul going in and saying, hey, Jesus, by faith, you trust, you believe, God has fulfilled his covenant promises to Israel, and you can all believe. And all the people say, amen, and he makes an altar call, and they come forward, and he says, okay, thank you all for coming forward. There's just one more thing. I need to meet privately with the men. Oh, okay, what's this about? Yeah, yeah, come back. Yes, the gospel is free. Yes, it's grace. Yes, it's salvation. Just come on to the back room. And he says, okay, fellas, let me talk to you about a little matter of some surgery. This is going to be a tough sell, and Paul knows it. Paul knows that both methodologically and theologically that circumcision is not going to work in a culture and in a context where they don't have those associations. Furthermore, circumcision, even for the Jew who had those associations, has lost its basic meaning and significance. By the way, this can happen with us with the Sabbath. That's a whole other sermon. But we can actually miss the point of the symbol and think that the symbol is the thing and not the thing to which the symbol points. Look at Galatians 2. This is one of the most amazing stories. We're just going to read it because Paul here tells a story and we're going to land on this note. Paul says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. It doesn't seem like it in the Acts narrative, but there's actually a great big space between the conversion of Saul in Acts 9 and his first missionary journey in Acts 13. It seems like it could be just a few months. There's actually more than a decade in there. Right? Paul has disappeared. He's gone to Arabia where he's learned the gospel from Jesus himself. Paul is telling us that here. He's filling in the gaps. Again, I'll just say that if we didn't have the book of Acts, the New Testament would be an absolute mess. We would have no clue what was going on, who was where, when, what, why, how. We wouldn't know any of it. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation, and I communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately I spoke to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I had run or might run in vain. Paul says, I sat down with the leaders of the community privately to listen to them, hear them out. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He said, we sat down, we heard out their reasoning, their rationale behind circumcision of Gentiles. And he said, Titus, who was a Greek, was with me, and he found their reasoning unpersuasive. Verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in to spy out our liberty which we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we didn't yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says, man, we listened to them, but they added nothing to us. Verse 6, but from those who seem to be something, these elders or these false teachers, whatever they were, it makes no difference. God shows no personal favoritism to any man. For those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. In other words, they added no new truth to my gospel. I was preaching the gospel of grace by trusting to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, and they said, go to the Gentiles, and we'll go to the circumcised. Verse 10, they said only one thing, Paul, make sure you minister to the poor. That's the very thing that Angus was doing. That's the very thing that Sinead was doing. That's the very thing that we've done today with our Adra offering. Minister to the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing we were, we were inclined to do. Now look at this, verse 11. Now when Peter came to Antioch, Paul is there in Antioch, and Peter shows up. I withstood him to his face. I called him out. Right? How do you guys say it? I, I, I called him up, or how would you say that? I pulled him up. Is that it? I pulled him up. He says, I pulled him up. Peter came to Antioch and I pulled him up to his face because he was to be blamed. Why? 
Why did Paul pull Peter up? Well, because before certain men came from James, he would sit and eat with the Gentiles. But when James came and his crew, he withdrew and he separated himself, fearing those who are fearing the Jews. The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So Paul here has got all these new Gentile converts, all these new people that have come to fellowship meal. They've come to potluck and Peter's there eating and Barnabas is there eating and all the Jewish people there eating with the Gentiles and it's all fine and good until the posse from Jerusalem shows up, James and his compatriots, and the Jews were afraid of their associations. And so even though they had been freely and easily and, and hospitably mingling with the Gentiles, Gentiles before, as soon as James shows up, they separate themselves and they eat only with the Jews. And when Paul saw this hypocrisy, he didn't just sit on it. He was no mealy-mouthed, namby-pamby preacher. He, he speaks up and he calls out the hypocrisy. He pulls him up. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before everyone, hey, Peter, I got a question for you, buddy. If you are a Jew and you live like the Gentiles, and not like the Jews, then how come you're compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews? We, he's saying all of this, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek here, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the Jewish law. For by the works of the Jewish law, no flesh will be declared righteous. And he goes on. He basically pulls him up. And here's the point. Paul was deeply concerned that the gospel be contaminated or mingled with anything else that would compromise the beauty, the simplicity, and the sublimity of grace. Now, I'm going to share with you the single best quotation that I personally know of on grace. And it's from a woman named Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You got a better quotation, you give it to me. I'll take it. But I tell you, this one is as good as they come. She writes, We would have never learned the meaning of this word grace if we hadn't fallen. Just let that settle in. We wouldn't know what grace is if there hadn't been sin, if there hadn't been a fall, if there hadn't been a rebellion. God loves the sinless angels, yes, who do His service and are obedient to all of His commands, but God does not give them grace. Why? These heavenly beings know nothing of grace. They have never, and what is that word right there? They have never needed it, for they have never sinned. They don't need grace. Why not? They've never sinned. God loves them. He shows kindness to them, compassion to them. He provides for them, but he doesn't provide grace to the angels. Why? They don't need grace. Grace is an attribute of God shown to undeserving human beings. We ourselves did not go looking for grace. No. Grace was sent out in search of us. Somebody say amen. I know it's, on, I know it's one o'clock. You say amen. Grace was sent in search of us. God rejoices to bestow His grace upon all who hunger for it. Not because we are worthy, but because we are so utterly unworthy. Our, what's that word right there? It's the same word as this one right here. This word, oh, come on, you. It's this word right here, need. Need, look at this. Our need is the qualification which gives us the assurance that we shall receive the gift. This is something that is scarcely understood about grace. 
If you feel that you're undeserving of it, it's proof positive that you'll receive it. Did you get that? If you feel that you are unworthy of it, it's proof positive that you'll receive it. Because your need is the very thing that enables you to receive that which you wouldn't need or receive if you hadn't committed the thing that makes you feel unworthy. Oh, I tell you, my friends, grace is not something you want. Grace is something you need. You don't want grace. You don't want oxygen. You need oxygen. You need grace. And Luke and Paul here in Acts chapter 14, they start dropping this word, the grace of God, the gospel of Christ, the grace of God, the gospel of Christ, the grace, the gospel, the grace, the gospel. Why is this word showing up suddenly in Acts 13, 14 and beyond when it hadn't really made an appearance before this? Because now the church is wrestling. What do we do with all these new people? What do we do with all these weird people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't act like us, who don't smell like us? How do we deal with these new people? Do they have to become like us? And Paul says, oh man, come on, don't even dream of it. If somebody comes to your church and tells you that, he says, let them be accursed. No, we've got to extend grace because we have received grace. Woo, I'm going to say that again. We've got to extend grace because we have received grace. Last statement here. Paul is an urban missionary. This is from Robert Wall, his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Last one. The city in Acts, Paul is going from city to city. He's going from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derbe, city to city to city to city to city. He says the city in Acts is a symbol of God's universal salvation. Nothing can be farther from Luke's theological point than for a congregation The little, tidy, sweet, nice, neat, comfy congregation of the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church than for a congregation to gather in isolation from its surroundings without any interest in reaching out to the diverse populations or institutions. The vocation of the urban congregation, as exemplified by Paul, is to bear witness to the risen Jesus to, what is that word right there? Everyone from the least and the last to the rich and famous, God wants all to hear and receive the good news of salvation. Friends, our Connect cards aren't going to work today because we printed the wrong one. So we're not going to have a Connect card. So I'm just going to make a verbal appeal. Grace is not something that you want. Oxygen is not something you want. It's something you need. Your very life depends on it. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm not sure. I've done this and I've committed this and I've done that or whatever. I'm telling you, the very sense that you have of your possible and potential unworthiness is the guarantee that you will receive the thing that you're questioning whether or not you can have. What did Jesus say? Oh, you think I came to heal the healthy people? Is that what you think? Anybody can do that. Right, Dr. Mahanu have no problem taking care of a bunch of healthy people. It's the sick people. Jesus said, I came to call the sick, to call the needy, to call the desperate, to call the unworthy, to call the sinner. You need grace. You have to receive it. And then here's this beautiful truth. After you have received 
the privilege of being treated not as you deserve, you extend that to others. And this is where the church really comes into its own. Extending to others the kindness, the attitude, the disposition of grace. Imperfect ourselves, we must be very careful in our treatment of others. Everyone in this room needs grace. Today, as a gift of salvation through the gospel, everyone in this room can receive grace. And then the onus of responsibility and privilege is upon us to extend to others what has been proffered to us by the risen Christ. Can someone say amen?